Well, good morning to you. Good morning. Brian asked me if I would consider preaching today, and he said, uh, you have 15 minutes. I think he's just trying to mess with me, because uh, last time he asked me to preach on 42 verses in Acts, and this time it was 15 minutes. Uh, maybe it's like a weird hazing ritual or something. I was joking around with somebody in the first service. It was like a, like a two-hour delay in school, except you get there, and there's like four tests, a group project, and an assembly, right? So you got to like do it all in one day, but... I think there's something that God has for us today. We're going to look at um, Wonderful Counselor. You've heard that name mentioned several times. We're using this text from Isaiah 9 uh, to kind of frame our Advent series. There are four names of Jesus here. I'm just going to read the, the verse in Isaiah 9, 6 so we know where it's coming from. Isaiah writes to a, a nation, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we're looking at these four names uh, which are given to the Messiah of God, the one who will save uh, God's people. And it's important for us to remember that, that names in the Hebrew context are a little deeper than what they are for us, right? Names for us are kind of just identifiers. If you want to get my attention, you have to say Kevin. And that's about all that Kevin means as far as I know. Uh, we did look it up when we were trying to name our first child. We didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And so we just looked up, what does Kevin mean? And I guess it means gentle and lovable. Um, <clears throat> those who know me a little bit <laughs> find that pretty funny. So, um, so I'm not sure that that name means a whole lot as regards Kevin. But uh, names in the Hebrew context are different. It's not identifier, it's identity. So especially as God reveals his name to us, this is how he's revealing his character, how he's giving us a sense of his personality, his nature, and who he is. So this is different. This is, this is important for us to grasp. So as we think about wonderful counselor, uh, we should stop and consider well, how did Isaiah use those words? What was the context that they would have been received uh, before we begin to apply them to Jesus? So the idea of, of wonderful in the Old Testament has generally two meanings. One is kind of like the, the miraculous, the, the thing that you marvel at, extraordinary, maybe difficult to understand. Uh, and number two is, is wonder at God's acts of redemption, uh, specifically his judgment and redemption. So you get verses like uh, from the Psalms, you have done wonderful things. I will remember your wonders of old. Or, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Right? The Messiah, Jesus, would be wonderful, full of wonder, performing miracles, certainly one to marvel at. He'd be extraordinary, and he'd be part of God's plan for judgment and redemption. And he's not just wonderful, he's also counselor. So the idea of counselor in Isaiah's time is this, this idea of one who guides, one who advises uh, one who provides counsel, obviously, and one who purposes and determines a course of action. The Proverbs, you know, often talk about our need for counsel, right? So you have verses like, where, where no counsel is, the people fall. Or, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. And the counsel of God includes with it the, the utmost wisdom, which we so desperately need. Even Isaiah, just two chapters later, prophesies again about the Messiah, saying this, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, would be a, a wonderful counselor who's wise, 
beyond understanding. And that's, the, that's what we, I want to look at today, the kind of the eternal wisdom of the wonderful counselor, that, that the, the wonder and of God's plan for judgment and redemption would be put into place by the counselor, Jesus, from the beginning of time. So we're going to look at the book of Ephesians today. You heard it read from the message version. Uh, grab the Bible in front of you or one you have with you, because I'm going to read it again from the ESV just for clarity's sake. Uh, if you're going to pull the one from in front of you, it's on page 976. And if you literally don't own a Bible, please take that one home and read it on your own. Uh, you will find life in those pages. This is Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Paul writes to the church, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless the teaching of your word. You would open it to our hearts and illuminate uh, in our minds the person of your son, Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Amen. Deep breath. That's a hard passage, right? That's three English sentences and 14 commas. There's a lot of clauses in there. I tried to diagram it. I did not ask my wife to help me with that process, but she was an English major. She probably could have done it better than I could. That is a really hard um, section of scripture. There's a lot in there. And we're not going to cover all of it. But certainly one major theme that I want to highlight is that Paul is, is describing that God has been orchestrating our redemption for a long time. So we're going to throw the passage back up and there's some bolded phrases that I want to uh, kind of just draw our attention to. So um, Paul is trying to say kind of the same thing in three different ways. So he says first that, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Right? But before anything happened, before the beginning of Genesis, God chose us in Christ. That, that, that's not, like that, that, that's been planned for a long time, right? Before the foundation of the world, that's a long time ago. Or the next one, that God predestined us for adoption through Christ. Predestined us. This was our destiny for a long time. Uh, as a brief aside, we were talking about this yesterday a little bit, and I knew that I was not going to be able to touch on predestination in 15 minutes. Uh, and my son, Rooker, who's 11, said, well, God, predestination is just like jazz music. It's like, in the middle of the jazz song, like, it's just chaos. Nobody knows really what's going on. But the artists know what's going on, and at the end, it all makes sense. It's like, <laughs> okay, so um, he should maybe be up here instead of me. But I promise you I'm not making that story up. That literally happened yesterday. Um, Anyhow, uh, the third thing I want to call out is, is later in the passage, it says that God set forth a plan in Christ for the fullness of time. It's this idea that things were building and building and building for the fullness of time until everything was just right for what God was about to do. This is the language of the long game. 
This is not the language of a God who's caught off guard by our sin, who has no idea what to do and says, ah, it's the 11th hour, we better come up with something quick. Right? This is the plan from the beginning, and this is the, the outworking of Jesus completing what he has purposed, this counselor who has set forth a plan in motion from the beginning of time. Think of the eternal wisdom of God to put this in motion and to complete it. And I hope somebody in the room is saying, prove it. But there should be a skeptic saying, like, you can talk about this, Paul can talk about it, but is it really true? And so what we're going to do is look at a brief story from Genesis about uh, maybe 1,800 years before Christ in the story of Abram. So Abram was a nomad living in uh, the ancient Middle East, and God just comes to him. We don't know why. God chose him, and he said, Abram, guess what? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you kids. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So indirectly, let's call that Messiah. I'm going to give you land, kids, and Messiah all through you, Abram. All you have to do is walk with me. And so he does. He walks with God, kind of leads him into this new land. He gives it to him. But he gets to be an older man as he's walking with God, and he still doesn't have kids yet. And so he says to God one night, God, where's my kids? Right? This is a man of some some boldness. The Hebrew word is chutzpah. Right? It's this bold faith. And he says to God, where's my kids? And God says, go outside. It's nighttime. Look up. Do you see the stars? You can have more kids than that. Kind of amazing. Until you see the next paragraph, Abraham says to him, or sorry, it's Abram and Abraham, same guy. I'm going to mess it up. Anyhow, um, he says, how am I to know that you will keep your promise? That's a bold question for God, right? This is the bold man. And what follows is a really classic example of a blood covenant. So we're in Genesis 15 here, if you're interested in sort of following along. But in order to explain what a blood covenant is, we just got to like, to see what happens in the text, we got to know what a blood covenant is. So there's always two parties in a covenant. It's a solemn, lifelong, binding sort of contract, but it's so deep and so um, stark in the consequences that are at stake. So you always have two parties. One is a a greater party and a lesser party, right? We talk about covenant a little bit now, but it's usually between what we consider two equals. It's not the same in the Middle Eastern context. So uh, the example that's often used is marriage. And in that cultural context, the groom's family is the greater party. The bride's family is the lesser party. And they would covenant with each other each party bringing its own sort of list of, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and these are the benefits I expect from the contract. It's a solemn thing. It's lifelong. The Hebrew word actually comes, is derived from the, uh, the word to cut or to divide. So the lesser party would bring an animal. They would cut the animal in two. They would separate the pieces. The blood from the animal would come in between, and they would make a covenant together. So the greater party would come first and say, here's what I promise to do. The groom would say, I promise to be a faithful husband. And the interesting thing about the culture is that it wouldn't be the groom. It would be the groom's dad or grandfather, whoever the patriarch of the family is. I promise that he will be this way. And if he's not, here's what you can do. And he walks forward through the blood and he turns around and he walks back. And he says, if if my grandson, if my son doesn't keep the, the covenant, you may cut my throat Let my blood be spilled into the dirt, and you can walk in my blood. Very grave circumstances, right? This is like not, this is not like a contract, like, hey, let's do business together. This is a binding covenant. Then the lesser party would go. Same thing. Here's what we promise. Here's what you can do. And it would be the grandpa or the dad. 
the patriarch of the family. You, if she doesn't keep our promise as covenant, you can cut my throat and walk through my blood. That's what a blood covenant is in the Middle Eastern context. So here's what Abraham, Abram says to God, how do I know you're going to keep your promise? And God says, get the animals, divide them. This is covenant language and Abram knows it. So God says to Abram, get a heifer, get a ram, get a goat, get a turtle dove, get a young pigeon, cut them in half and place them opposite each other. Let the blood run down between and let's make a covenant. So you have to imagine the labor involved in this task, right? Like getting those animals, like rending them in two, you have to imagine Abram's like, my stupid mouth, <laughs> me and my chutzpah, here I am. And, and we actually don't get a sense from Genesis 15 what his end of the bargain was. We know what God's was, land, kids, Messiah. In chapter 17, God re-ups the covenant and we learn what Abram's part of the covenant was. It was just something like walk before the Lord and be blameless. So Abram is now like rending these animals, letting the blood go down, and he's like, oh no, I'm in trouble. He knows if he sets one big toe in that blood, he's gone. He's a dead man because he knows he cannot do it. So the text is great. It says the sun goes down and Abram falls into a deep sleep and a dreadful and great darkness falls upon him. This is literally like the Hebrew word for utter terror because he knows he can't do it and he doesn't know how he's going to get out of this without just being killed in the midst of the covenant. So what happens? Well, in the covenant, the greater party goes first. So God goes first. He's the greater party. So the text says a smoking fire pot passes between the blood. So God is saying, Abraham, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, land, kids, Messiah, you can cut my throat and walk in my blood. Now, obviously God can keep his end of the bargain. That's easy for God. And then it's Abram's turn. And Abram doesn't do his part. The text says that a uh, flaming torch passes through the pieces. And we have to ask ourselves, who is this? It's not Abram. The only other party in the covenant is God. And all over the Bible, God is represented by fire. We have the pillar of fire. We have the tongues of fire. There's lots of different references. So we have God now taking the part of both the lesser and the greater party. And God saying to Abram, if you can't walk before me and be blameless, you can cut my throat and walk in my blood. You can do this to me. And in that moment, you have the death sentence for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You have the entire gospel in one picture because God would have to become a man to have flesh and blood that could be spilled on our behalf to fulfill the covenant that he made with Abram. It's incredible. It's 1,800 years prior to Jesus. It's 1,100 years prior to Isaiah. This is the plan orchestrated by God from the very beginning, that, that he would come to earth, that he would have flesh and blood, that he would walk the blameless life we can't walk, that he would be murdered on our behalf, that his blood would be spilled in the dirt, and that we would walk in it as the covenant is fulfilled. It's Jesus hanging on the cross saying, it is finished. I have fulfilled the covenant. And then we go back to those phrases in Ephesians 1. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. The same word, blameless, that Abram couldn't do. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters, part of the inheritance of kids, part of God's family grafted in 
through Jesus. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Redemption through the blood of the covenant. The God-man becoming flesh to have his blood spilled on our behalf. This, friends, is the wonderful counselor that we worship. It's the wonderful counselor who invites us to sit under his eternal wisdom, to have him direct our lives. And to be honest, that's the second 15 minutes of this sermon, is how do we make that a reality? But we don't have that time today, so we just get to sit with this picture of the blood covenant. And what more appropriate way than to take communion as we consider that? So I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're just going to pause and ready our hearts to take the the meal of the new covenant in Christ.